welcome to Baijiu Yoki, episode, I don't know, thousand, something now, um, feels like that. Uh, we have a special guest, David, or pretentious, uh, what is your username? Pretentious what? Pretentious, pretentious what? Yeah. Yeah, I just said pretentious what, no, that would have just got a bit, but yes. And of course, Regan, uh, hey. the, the top uh no he's not stabbed anyway um, <laughs> um yeah just i just want to thank um you know the indigenous people for letting us on their land well which they actually didn't really let us on you know we're kind of like a, it's, a, it's a complicated situation a very horrible one but actually, uh it's a very spicy much... spicy topic in australia at the moment as we're oh. leading to australia day Dude, did, did you um, see that, David? What, what the Prime Minister said? I mean, I know you're American, but uh, what the Australian Prime Minister said? I I don't think I caught it. Do you have much Australian content in your feed? How many Australians do you follow? I think you guys are responsible for about 85 <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> well, that's good, because it's not a good thing to really follow. But um, it's pretty... I mean, Scummo, you know, Scummo is trending, which you probably can guess why. Like, you know, Scomo. Scummo. Okay. Yes. He's our prime minister. As you can see, we have a lot of um, respect for our politicians here. <laughs> yeah. um, he just said some boring stuff. Every year we come around to Australia Day, our national holiday, and there's just lots of bunch of boring discourse, the same stuff over again. It's like the, the liberal version of Columbus Day. It's like Columbus Day in, in sort yeah. of like that, but our version. And so the, the the left always tries to cancel it, but the right sort of they, they do all like this weird dog whistle stuff. They're like we've got to be proud of what we what we built from those ships. Is that what he said? Something like that. I can't remember. Uh, so um, the, the first people to come to Australia from Europe, um, it was a bunch of ships and uh, convicts, I guess. And his argument was that. Um, it was bad for them coming. I don't know. I felt like he was saying it was bad for them to come here, which kind of defeats his purpose of celebrating Australia Day. He's kind of shot himself in the foot here. Um, of course, everyone, the, the implication there is that um, somehow the Indigenous struggle has been at equally as bad to the... Yeah. How it is, how uh, it is for settlers. <laughs> yeah, because you probably know, like, the first fleet, I mean... Mo- well, uh, majority were convicts, I think. Majority? Something like that? Uh, it, was, it was about um, about a third. There's still like a bunch of um, Navy guys to work the ships. And there was the actual, definitely, uh, what do you call it, a, a, bu- a bad Tinder uh, situation. There was a lot of guys, that's what I remember. We got what we learned. Not many girls. There was, there was heaps of babies born on the trip, though. Oh. Uh. So, Still very awkward. But anyway, uh, David just like, what's going on? <laughs> um, it was a horrible situation. You guys get interesting things uh, on your trending bar in Australia. I never see any of that on Twitter because, of course, you know I'm on a VPN. And so the, the fastest and most convenient VPN for me to use is to just be in Hong Kong, which means my trending bar all day long is just hashtag Beijing Biden, hashtag Chinazi, hashtag oh. everything. Everything that's trending in Hong Kong is is <laughs> that just makes me ignore the trending bar entirely. Yeah, wow, that's cool. Why don't you switch to another one? 
I mean, it's the fastest for him because most yeah, of the outside internet goes to Hong Kong to to to, to China. That's like the Great Wall's gate, the firewall gate. Yeah. Well, isn't yeah. it ironic that the firewall has created something that is so critical of it? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that, that's pretty funny because you must have seen a lot of those weird, um, you know, like this liberal mind mind break. You know how a lot of them like, oh, how could these Hong Kongs all support Donald Trump and all these QAnon conspiracies? You know. And they just can't get over it, like, because, you know, just one side supporting Donald Trump, and the other side's like, you know, they're like, no, you can't, he's, that's, he's not democratic. And, and you're trying to fight for dem- democracy in Hong Kong as well. It's just like, whoa. Yeah, yeah they're, they're struggling with it to explain it uh, to us. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You, obviously, they're, they're never going to accept that there is a, a hypocrisy there somewhere. Um, a lot of these, I mean, not all of them, but many, there are quite a few extreme right-wing types in that community so <laughs> yeah uh, and when when uh be it media personalities or or uh think tank types or whomever is commenting and there have been some who have realized and noticed and and pen these incredibly uh emotional soppy statements about how they didn't realize and they find it deeply upsetting and disturbing and the fact that you could even write such a thing and admit that you didn't realize it before, this kind of illustrates like, what what what, did, what were you thinking? Were these people just yeah. some imagined in your mind? Because anyone who who took the time to actually listen to what they were saying was, was <laughs> yeah. pretty, what what they represent. It's just really stark conservative politics that they represented. I mean, even Joshua Wong's dad, which you know he moved to Australia today. Um, it was an anti-LGBT crusader. <laughs> so, you know, like, what do you expect? Or you just, you know, look at even what's on the other side for five minutes. You just see videos of very much localist bashings of migrants. And um, it, I don't know what you mean, David. That's It's just, it fucks my mind, actually. Just, un, you know, like, it's you know that these people are lying. But anyway. Um, well, we, yeah. Yeah. They're just... It's, I think I just want to say it's really important that we all understand that they are never gonna gonna reconcile, and that um, there's gonna be the funniest stuff is gonna be said. Um, it's gonna be painful to see, but we should just <laughs> yeah try and laugh at it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I met a lot of Hong Kongers recently in Australia. They they're very um, they're very sad because they now have a really bad reputation in the mainland as like potentially crazy nativists, you know, but. <laughs> Um, and they're like, we, we don't want to be like seen as that, but these like sort of, I don't know, it's like a minority or it's just a lot of youths who are just very, I don't know what they're looking at. But um, so for people don't know, David's a, uh, oh, do you want to introduce yourself like an energy specialist? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I've, um, I mean, I, I went to school originally undergraduate for, for, for Chinese language and then did my master's degree uh in in china focusing on international studies with a strong concentration in in energy and energy economics so started working i spent my whole career in china in the energy sector uh originally focusing primarily on nuclear power and in the last two years uh after after a little job shift our company was acquired and started covering a lot more solar and wind and a little bit more uh, just broad focus on Chinese new energy, mostly working for uh, 
and our clients are usually banks that want to build want to build solar power or wind power and they need they need somebody to help them convince their credit bureau that it's a good investment in China which it usually is they just need the numbers which we do oh, awesome so, so it's all money talking at the end here it's very capitalistic and but it also serves I guess um, what you know ever since that documentary I think it was a few years ago I think it was five or six years ago where that lady had a big talk on in Beijing and they were talking about like lung disease or breathing like lung cancer or something did you see that David and that's what kind of made like that green energy kind of push the anti-pollution push really big in China that's what I think it's sort of the catalyst yeah well certainly I mean among all the societal ills that you can see some type of uh different stratified responses in society clean air is one of the things where you know you no matter how much money you have you still have to breathe the same air as everybody else no matter how mm. much power you have you have to breathe the same dirty air uh and and i mean when i used to live in beijing it was it was it was just awful and everybody knew it everybody knew that mm. it was you know, smoking half a pack a day or something like that and uh the the clean energy plan in China, various iterations of it have go even farther back than you know five years. But the the strong implementation of it and the really clear goals and targets, we want to have this many gigawatts of solar and wind by XX date, and we're going to reduce carbon intensity by this much by this date. That really came about, I would say, in the last two five-year plans. So in the last decade of where we started to see really concrete targets for, for environmental goals. Do you think this came about as um, sort of a combination of international pressure plus sort of domestic pressure, where people got sort of prosperous enough to start caring about this and sort of just economic needs at heart? Or I, I, I'm sure it's a combination of both. I mean, China wants to be seen as much as possible as a, a virtuous actor in the climate space. And sometimes the actions uh, in the words don't match up, right? It's sometimes difficult to reconcile talking a lot about renewable energy and still building a bunch of coal plants. But mm. the amount of renewable energy that has been built is unquestionably uh, world leading. And the the advances in technology that have led to the economies of scale and have led to the breakthroughs in, in manufacturing costs compared to a decade ago are all happening here or primarily happening here. And, and thanks to the effort of the industry and the government dollars that have been spent to to subsidize the industry until it could stand on its own feet yeah um actually that's a big question is um you know what why is china building so many coal plants is this just for sort of new developing areas to get cheap energy or is there another reason well it's that's always a that's a very complicated question part of the simple answer is uh well you know demand is still growing and supply has to rise to meet the demand now china is oversupplied no doubt uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, China was undersupplied and uh, you had brownouts, you had blackouts, you had power rationing all the time. And over time, that situation reversed itself. Uh, we had especially coal is, is, in the greater scheme of things, very cheap if you're not building in carbon pricing and carbon markets and uh, just on the merits of, of uh, how much it costs to build and fuel and operate. It's, it's, it's cheap compared to other types. And developing economies love it for that reason. 
Uh, it's base load. It's always on. You don't have to worry about it turning off when the sun stops shining or the wind stops blowing. And uh, in China's case, you can you can get a lot of it at home. So energy security is in the mix. You're not importing this this energy fuel. You're you're you got it right at home. It's not the greatest. Yeah. Problem. It's like all one, there. One term you're probably very familiar with is uh, the Shanxi Meilouban. You probably know what I mean. Um, yeah. Uh, we probably don't know. So Meilouban just means coal boss or coal uh-huh, okay. just like that it's like a coal yeah, daddy so inner mongolia and shanxi coal bosses these are the epitome i think of the um the so-called tuhao which is like, rich. <laughs> just really rich guys who aren't you know the most uh cultured or sophisticated you know they probably don't have a really great educational background uh but they got a ton of money and it's money from you know it's dirty but it's honest that kind of thing well i don't know how honest it is but it's definitely uh it's dirty coal. and uh so they have this reputation for being the the, the coal boss as being the the uh the bumpkin from the countryside who comes to the city and has a lot of money and spends it very ostentatiously. Yeah, because I remember uh, when I was a kid in Beijing, and you see a car of the, the Shanxi um, number plate, and it was oh, Meloban, Meloban, he's like a rich guy, you know, he's got the coal, he's the coal money, you know, and you can tell, but you see that less and less now, you know. Um, so I'm guessing, is that is that sort of a trend that's going with China, or is um, you know, this also sort of sticks to that part of is China importing more coal? Or as you say, they still have a very large supply that we're trying to keep it. What's going on with the supply of coal? And so so quite, uh, quite a few years back, Chinese coal demand exceeded its domestic capability, capacity to supply, and it began importing. Uh, China has plenty of coal still, but it's low quality coal compared to uh, something like lignite. That's the, the good stuff, quote unquote. Oh, that's uh, what we so, have in Melbourne. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's what they get uh, from Australia and um, and from Indonesia and a few other sources. Uh, that's where the the import of coal is coming in. And so uh, yeah, China has been a net coal importer for quite a few years, and I'm sure from a from a energy security standpoint, it's uh, less than desirable. Uh, and I'll, many back when when I was mostly focused on nuclear, we used to talk about nuclear as being one of those things where you can control the supply chain domestically very well. Once you start building mm. your own plants, you have a replacement for coal. Uh, as long as you have uh, the capacity to to manufacture uh, and fabricate fuel assemblies in the country, and you have a good source on uranium that isn't a country that's you know antagonistic. So uh, wait, wait. So just go back to lignite. Because when I was a kid in Australia, for some reason, we learned about coal a lot. So when there was two types of coal, it was the black one and the brown one. And we even went to like coal places for like excursions when I was like. Same. Yeah. Yeah. What is, that's in Australia because we managed, we just have so much coal, coal, so many coal mines here. Um, so is lignite the one that you use for like uh, making steel or is that the one for, you know, making power? What's the difference? So the black coal is, um, I believe it's anthracite. Uh, yeah. And then like very. Bituminous, I believe, is the word in subbituminous. Uh, these are vocab words, and I'm not I'm not a coal expert, but I know that the black coal is the lower quality stuff, and the brown coal, at least for energy generation, is is the lignite, is the good stuff. Right. Ah, that's why Australia exports so much coal. Ah, okay. Because <laughs> that's all we learn. Like Australia has a lot of brown coal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, keep keep going. Yeah. So, Deb, 
Also, there's been a lot of talk about there being shortages um, because of the, the trade dispute between Australia and China. Um, and you've done some pretty good threads debunking them. Do you want to um, tell us about those? or? Yeah, I could talk about that a little bit. So we're talking about uh, about just over a month ago, uh, we had several provinces in China were talking about uh, power shortages and power rationing. And uh, the three provinces that were mentioned most often and that uh, the media and also government releases uh, have talked about are Zhejiang, Hunan, and Jiangxi. Uh, the situation for Hunan and Jiangxi was quite similar, uh, and Zhejiang was kind of its own separate thing. Uh, so Zhejiang we'll talk about first. That was the simpler one. Zhejiang, I mean, it's... They were it's very rich quite province. You wouldn't yeah, yeah, they were being silly yeah. about it, really. It had nothing to do with supply and demand and everything to do about uh, meeting their end of the five-year, end-of-decade coal-saving uh, goals. And so they've determined that we need to meet our objectives for reducing intensity of coal usage by the end of the year. So uh, I think it was Iwu City issued some uh, indelicate demands for Soft industry. capital. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Stop using power. Stop using coal power, so we can, you know, show our bosses that we did a good job this year in reducing coal power. And the funny thing about this is, if anybody's been following power in Zhejiang, we know that earlier this year, when then we were emerging from COVID lockdowns, uh, that very same province, that very same area, uh, Taishin Global was was reporting that they were running the factories with no workers in them. They were running the air conditioner and they turned all the machines on because they wanted to use electricity because that was the index that the upper ups had decided was the was the marker of quick economic recovery. That oh, said, God, that is such a uh, communist party thing to do. Factories <laughs> they, they haven't returned from their hometowns yet. They still can't travel. No, nope, no, nope, our economic output is is cranked all the way back up because we've used a lot of electricity. Taishin Global sent, you know, sent reporters in there, and this is why I think I Taishin, because they do this kind of reporting. Uh, they said, look, there's there's nothing being made from the factories, but that's not what they chose as the economic output indicator. They chose power consumption. So earlier in the year, they're they're I guess they're fudging the numbers a little bit to uh, to show a quicker economic recovery, and then later in the year they have to ration because they, you know. Did too good of a job earlier in the year. I don't know. Uh, it was, it's a silly situation. I mean, that's is its own thing. Uh, the provincial government noticed what was happening, and a couple days later, they issued a press release saying, you know, the the uh, inappropriate policies have been remedied, and you're not doing that anymore. And so it stopped. Yeah, I mean, Zhejiang, uh, for people that know, is quite very one of the most wealthy provinces in China. So it can sort of mess around um, at the expense of living standards a bit, I guess. Um, and it was, it, was, it was very localized and it was a very yeah. artificial shortage. That's yeah. the key thing. It was an artificial store, uh, shortage. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, they they didn't ha they weren't lacking for coal power. They stopped using it because they wanted to meet their objectives for using less oh, coal power. Oh, basically, that it. Oh, wow. So again, yeah. they're, they're just that rich in this yeah. you No, know, it's like there's that joke about uh, what's that uh, place, Wenzhou, and there's like that one village. Everyone's a millionaire because they all like sell matchboxes or whatever the hell they sell. You know. I, I've heard about the millionaire village. I don't I don't remember what they do, but yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, they're like the merchant. 
like the, if there was a place where all the merchants congregate in China, it would be Zhejiang. Like that, that's the stereotype for that area. Yeah, they're, so, they're all business people. The two stereotypes you hear about Wenzhou is that they're all they're all very good at doing business and that nobody can understand each other because oh, even yeah. within Wenzhou, there's like 15 different mutually unintelligible dialects. Isn't it called the devil's, devil's dialect or something? The local language. I mean. Uh, I don't know. I just know that despite its proximity to to Shanghai or the greater like Wu dialect area, that nobody can understand Wenzhounese. Yeah, Not they call it the devil's tongue, I think, something like that in Chinese. And uh, you can't trust them because they're all sleazy businessmen. You know, they're just trying to scam you. That's a Chinese stereotype. I can say that. Okay, that's that's just a stereotype for those people. I've I've heard this stereotype too that that they're they're hustlers and they're yeah. you know, savvy like you, business, but also. <laughs> You can't trust them. Like you go to like Sushi Hub or something, and like like a sushi restaurant in Melbourne, it's always opened by Wenzhounese. It's never a Japanese person. Like they will do anything. Like they will just they always make a profit. Okay, they will, they always turn a profit on anything. That's the stereotype. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> I'm not susp- not surprised that um you know that the gaming the numbers a bit there. And uh, I know so, please don't hate me, Angel people. I know I hate your food, but please don't hate me. But yeah. <laughs> So that, that was the situation in Zhejiang. The, the the situation in Hunan and Jiangxi, on the other hand, was quite different. Uh, again, unrelated to to coal, or maybe there's a slight relation to coal imports, but really much more about the state of supply and demand. Uh, so I've mentioned before, a, a power grid, any country's power grid, is it's not like a, a honeycomb where every point, every city, every location in the grid is connected to every other location at all times simultaneously. Uh, you have localized power networks and they're linked to other power networks by maybe one or two or three lines, right? They have limited interconnections. And so we can say central China is a single grid. It's got limited interconnections to other grids in China. There are six six grids. The central China grid, which contains Hunan and Jiangxi, is, is one of them. Okay. And uh, even within the provinces of a specific regional grid, the the provincial grid is its own node on the network and it might have limited interconnections to other places in the same in the same uh regional grid so hunan grid company uh operates hunan hunan power so hunan is in a state of uh net import of power at any given moment it it uh it needs more power than it generates locally. And it does that through uh, reciprocating uh, local lines that go up to Hubei. It has ultra high voltage lines that go out to Western China. Uh, it has you know, interconnectors with other parts of the, um, the regional grid to make sure it gets enough power because it in and of itself cannot supply all that it needs. It's usually uh, just kind of barely in a state of sufficient capacity, even with all those things connected. I think it's something like yeah. 35 gigawatts uh, are available through all of its sources. And it's uh, last year, its all-time high was something like 30 and a half gigawatts. And the rest of it is is reserve spinning margin to make sure it's, you know, it's a safety margin. Why, why is it like that for Hunan? Why is there like not enough supply? Uh, well, what they what they are building in Hunan, Hunan's kind of like in the Goldilocks zone of of not quite good enough to have really awesome solar and wind, which has you know been built a lot of recently. And then also, if you can not build as much coal, then you don't want to build as much coal. Uh, yeah. And because it's in the 
the central grid, you've got Sichuan, which is also in the central grid and has a great, great hydro resource. <coughs> resources too but all of these kind of contribute to a state of thinking that well if we could get the power from from hydro from imports from local hydro from from solar and wind slowly a little bit developing maybe we don't need to go overboard on coal in the past china just built way more than it needed because economic growth was always going to absorb it uh, mm. in a year or two you could always you know tolerate extra and you could absorb extra capacity now you know, GDP growth is no longer nine, eight, seven and a half percent. We're looking this year, you know, two and a half percent. And even after recovery, we're going to be looking at not six percent, not seven percent anymore, probably. Oh, wow. Uh, I was just assuming they're just cooking to me chili peppers or I don't know. It's like the Mao <laughs> province as well, right? And then they only have like, um, so Hunan's where Mao's from. And they're mostly famous for their uh, very spicy food and rough dialect. And um that one television station, that's like Mango TV as well, which is a spin-off of that. Nothing to do with Mango Press, of course, but um, yeah. Uh, so it, I'm just surprised because Hunan's very close to the Three Gorges Dam, and I'm guessing Wuhan is not part of that central grid. Wuhan like, uh, is also Hubei. part of the central grid. No, so Hubei is also part of the central grid, but Hubei also has very high power demand and is also a net importer. So that uses up the whole entire Three Gorges Dam, or...? A lot of the Three Gorges Dam is not used locally. Uh, it's also sending power to eastern China. Oh, okay. So confusing because I remember you drew that map or you showed us that map with like the high voltage, like those huge cables stretching like sort of from like Xinjiang to like eastern, the eastern seaboard or whatever. That's those lines. Like what's – is that what you're talking about or – yeah, so Three Gorges Dam uh, sends a lot of its power to to eastern China. Uh, Hunan itself has one of those high voltage lines. It come it goes from Gansu Province, which is way out west, uh, into into Changsha, I believe, or yeah. maybe a, a somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. I mean, surely they they could just build like a trillion solar panels in Xinjiang, where there's just so much sun, you know, just fill the desert. Or is that just a dumb idea? <laughs> uh, well, they did that. They did that in the last few years. Uh, they built oh. a ton of power, and uh, and then they had major problems with curtailment of power of of renewable energy because electricity is uh, what we call uh, an instantaneous time of use commodity. So it's generated, and it unless you have batteries or some other form of chemical storage or physical storage, it has to be consumed or it's just gone, right? It, it's it's non-existent anymore. So when you generate the power is the same time that you need to use the power again, unless storage is, is available. And generating a bunch of power in Xinjiang, which doesn't have a very high uh, demand for power, not a lot of heavy local industry, fantastic resources, fantastic mm. generating potential, but not a lot of it, you know, local usage for it. You got to send it somewhere else. Uh, and if you don't have somewhere else to send it, and you don't have enough local usage of it, what you've got is a terrible waste. You've got sun shining, you've got the wind blowing, and you've got a bunch of power spinning out nothingness. Yeah, true. And this is the cruel part of, of China, is that the renewable energies of solar, wind, um, and hydro all seem to be on the western and sort of southwestern fringes of China. Yeah, like Avatar. Yeah. Yeah. China always and and I remember when I mentioned about um, this this phenomenon of of the 
the power generation and the power demand kind of being split through the center of the country. And it's the same like that famous line, the famous imaginary line that Chinese children all learn that kind of uh, divides the country in half from west to, I guess, west to east diagonally. You know, they say... Oh, something with a line. Yeah, like how many people live, mean, 95% of the economic activity is on the east side of this line and 5% is on the way. I don't think it's that extreme, but something like that. Unfortunately, it's the opposite for, for energy generation, good energy resources. It's all the energy resources are on the western side of the line and all the places where they need to be used are on the east side of the line. So can't they just, like theoretically, just build giant batteries and build heaps of those huge cables and just keep transferring it over? They can't do that or...? Oh, they, they they can. It's very, very expensive to, to build. When, when you um, build uh, storage into your network, you're no longer accounting for the cost of just generating the power. Now you're accounting for the cost of generating the power, charging the battery, and then discharging the battery. Are these like and lithium batteries? Or... <laughs> Sorry. These could be lithium-ion batteries. That's what's used most commonly right now. So electro electrochemical storage. Okay, that's why I believe he is important. Tesla, for example, builds giant grid storage batteries out of used Tesla car batteries. Uh, just huge, huge installations of, of Tesla lithium-ion batteries. Oh, wow. And I guess that, that kind of helps them with when they're making they're making stuff in China now. And there's all that, also that, um, did you see that story recently of Tesla where they like blew, like a car blew up in Shanghai today or something? Uh, I haven't seen, but I know they've had some some issues with with their catching fire, right? Yeah, imagine that happened with like a giant giant like solar panel battery thing. Yeah, I don't know. This this just sounds crazy because I I never knew until you showed us those graphs. But um, anyway, I'll, I'll definitely upload those like those pictures with these giant cables stretching around the country, and it, it's actually quite amazing um, in just how that, that this, these type of things exist because I knew about there's there's a lot of major projects in China. There's like that uh, northwest north south water thing transfer. Yep. But um, it it just seems like the, the north really has nothing going for it in China. It's just like this, this wasteland. Of wind, yeah. tons and tons of wind, and uh, oh really? Yeah, all the good wind resources are in northern China, northeastern China. They just don't need it. You know, Dongbei, right? Northeast China. They're cold air as well. Contracting, yeah. contracting for the last few years and. They uh they have all this fantastic wind resources, so they're sending it to uh to the northern grid, which includes of course Beijing, Tianjin, but also importantly Shandong. Shandong is uh, a huge energy pig, uh in its grid. It has uh, way more demand than it has uh, ability for local generation, so it imports a lot. But there's so many mountains. Surely you could just stick you know windmills everywhere or something, turbines. <laughs> it's I have works. The, the, the generating potential for uh, for Shandong is still uh, does not categorize it as a as a tier one or even tier two uh, zone. I think, for for wind uh, wind resources and generally we'll see how many hours per year uh, hmm. that a, a resource is available. So if you can say something like two thousand hours a year out of you know uh, eight thousand five hundred or whatever it is a full year. Uh, that's you know pretty good, and I don't think most of the eastern coast is not hitting that on land. Now, you can go offshore, and offshore generating hours are are much much uh, stronger, but also it's much more expensive to build. Yeah, that, that's always interesting because um, Shandong has so many people, 
but all like I don't know it's just weird that people want to live in that really mountainous place. It's just I don't know these people are weird. But um, yeah, I don't know. Have you been there, um, David? Yeah, I've been um, a couple times. I've been up to uh, a nuke plant there actually, and uh, I went to Qinghai, uh, Qingdao once quite a few years ago. I've climbed uh, uh, the mountain Taishan, and I've been oh, to yeah. the capital. Did you go to Confucius's home or whatever? Chufu. I have not been to Chufu. I've I've yeah. been through every time I go through it on the train. They have right at the train station. They have this giant mural of Confucius right on the platform, so you can't miss it. It says Chufu, Confucius is home, and just a giant Confucius mural. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just find it really odd because there's like 100 million people in Shandong, and it's very mountainous. It's just like, why out of all the places you could choose, why would you choose Shandong? And it has, it seems like it doesn't really have that many resources either. It, it's, most of it's all sort of, uh, most of its economy is on the coast as well. So it's just sort of this, it, it doesn't make sense for me, but um, that's another conversation. But yeah, so as well as I, I, the North East question also will make it hard because, you know, it, it's, I'm guessing the Northern grid also contains Shanxi, which probably, you know, kind of trumps it in power generation, right? Or I, where, which, I'm not sure which, um which grid Shanxi belongs to. I guess it's not going to be the Northeast, so it must be the North grid. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, they're, uh, they're a power exporter, of course. They've got all the, um, they've got all the coal. And when you want to build a coal plant, uh, if you can get it really close to the source of the coal itself, uh, that of course reduces transport costs on the coal. So they have, you know, you can put a coal plant right next to a, a mine, and those are called mine mouth uh, coal plants. And they have theoretically the cheapest generating costs of all the coal, of all the coal plants. But of course, it depends on what you're digging out of the ground in Shanxi and where you're sending it. I think they're sending a lot of their power to um, to Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei area. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess Beijing would be a huge power sink, including, including that new... Um huge city trying to build the Jinji, whatever, Jinji. Oh, Jinji. yeah. Just, I only just found out about that place reading this paper. That seems pretty cool. Uh, is that Xiong'an? The, the new yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they, um, it was announced a couple years ago. It got a lot of press. It's very exciting. It's going to be a 100% green-powered new capital. Uh, and I've, I've met with a couple of think tanks and government research bodies that, uh, are eventually going to be moved out there, that their office will be moved to Xiong'an in three or five years or whenever it's being finished. Uh, but that, you know, they're kind of mixed feelings about it because if they're going to work there now, they can't live in Beijing anymore. Uh, they might have to go buy a new house in Xiong'an or something like that. Uh, but Xiong'an itself, to power it, they're, uh, they're going to bring in renewable energy from elsewhere. And so that was the, the UHV line that was just uh, completed from Zhangbei. So that's uh, Zhangjiakou, which is a city in Hebei, uh, north of Beijing. And it's got a big wind and solar generating base there, uh, mostly wind, I think. And they're going to be piping that power basically right down to Xiong'an. So they got their, uh, their renewable energy IV drip, so to speak. Right. <laughs> That's that's good then. Uh, I mean, it's really good for Hebei, which is you know kind of got been hamstrung by the fact that its two biggest cities really got taken out of its jurisdiction since the start of the, the People's Republic. Um, so I always felt really bad for them because you know they 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 really don't have anything going for them right now. 
but now they've got you know a huge giant massive city uh in Balding. um but you know that, that 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 just seems like for me whenever i saw that project i just always thought that it's going to be a huge pollution um issue because herbay whenever i went to that place herbay it was just like fogged up pollution the whole time uh especially shujadron one of the worst, most polluted places i've ever been in my life and would Shimon be any different or uh well i mean in general when was the last time you were in that part of the world probably three or four years ago Okay, so I mean, Beijing has been has been in the general area has been getting better year over year for sure. Uh, and I don't know if that's actually just Beijing, if they just succeeded in moving all the factories out of Beijing and into Hebei. Uh, that might be the case. So maybe Hebei is still getting worse while Beijing improves. But I remember being there in I mean, when I when I was first in China, 2010 and traveling through Hebei and into Shanxi and the whole way just thinking that this this looks like hell. <laughs> just yeah, like yeah that's what it seems like. It's like Mordor. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like everything was very gray because there was this layer of dust and the air was smoggy the whole way. And, you know, it's, it's terrible because I'm, the people there are very, very nice uh, and everybody mm. is terrible welcoming and they've got that gruff but incredibly warm and authentic northerner spirit going for them and they just live in the worst environment yeah i'm not sure regan have you have you been to like the beijing no, yeah it's it's really weird because the whole place is very very urbanized uh, it feels like like you, you go well it's, it's like over 100 million people in that area so you go a few kilometers a new city is a new town and it's just very gray um very uh, backwards compared to Beijing, which is very urbanized and very uh, developed in general. Um, and you just feel really bad for the people there. And I, I remember when I was about five, I went to my maternal grandma's um, hometown in Balding. And it was even worse. Like they had all, all the toilets were like those, you know those slit ones you've seen? Like when you just sort of squat, it's like a slit in the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's all I saw, man. That's all I can ever remember. And the fact they also killed a cow when I went there to welcome me. So, what about incomes in those areas? Is it pretty pretty rough as well, or? Well, yes. Yeah. Let's, let's put it like this: Northern China, rural areas in Northern China and Central China and, and parts of Western China are not that far off from what people in the West imagine China might be like. Right, like you get down right. to eastern and southern China and rural areas are just very less densely populated versions of the city. Like quality of life is quite high. There's very good greenification. Uh, things are quite new. You can tell the local government has money to build stuff and make things nicer. And you go up you go up north and you can you feel the, the stagnating economy and you see the, the the lower quality of living. I think it's pretty apparent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the average salary in Hebei is not even half of Beijing's, which and it's literally separated by like a you know it, it's Beijing's inside Hebei. Um, yeah. So it's kind of sad, um, but which is why a lot of the the people that live in Beijing are actually uh, migrants from Hebei, that the migrant workers. Um, but so it's really good for them that they're getting their own sort of uh, project in their city, uh, in the area, so to build stuff up. It's not it's not like Shanghai where you go to Jiangsu and Zhejiang. They're still very wealthy areas. So yeah, I I remember a Beijing taxi driver ranting to me once about how there are so few of his people left. You know the real authentic Beijingers driving taxi because he said I gotta tell you 
you know, most of us old Beijing folk, we moved out to the suburbs. Well, hold on. <laughs> all the year, yeah. I'm away. Let's say that. We'll talk. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, all the people driving taxis these days—they're not real Beijingers. They're all new transplants. Oh, you don't know how hard it goes, man. So my yeah. maternal grandma, um, she moved to, I think Beijing with her dad around the 1930s or 40s. So she, she, no, okay. So she, when I was a kid, and when I visited her. She was like, oh, you know, all these fucking people outside of the, you know, Arohuan. For her, anything outside of Arohuan is way then. But now, now you've got people from the Sanwan and Sihuan, which is like the third or fourth ring road. They're now the migrants. And anyway, it's weird. Then she would also fight with people from like the Hudongs who were in Beijing since the 1800s. And they were like, oh, you're a fucking, you know, foreigner. And it, what does it end up to? You have to be like the emperor in the Forbidden City to be the actual real Beijinger? Anyway, it, it, it's just, it, it never ends. <laughs> Like, uh, I guess you could talk, you could say that the actual indigenous people of Beijing, they, they don't, you know, you can't really get back to that. Yeah. It's a pretty funny thing, though. Like, they, they're just always ranting, Beijing people. And they, they go like, yeah, my great 15th ancestor, he, you know, he was the town policeman. He'll fuck what have fucked you up, bro. They're like that kind of guy, like those Italians in New York. Yeah. But, mm. Also, I learned all of my most colorful uh, curse words from, from Beijing taxi drivers, just how to, like a little old man who's a little bit slow getting out of the way of your taxi when the light turns, the crosswalk light turns turns red, but he was still halfway across and he'll just lean out the window, spit up something horrible from his lungs, <laughs> scream <laughs> phrases. Oh yeah. yeah. Really, thoroughly insulting language at this old man, spit again for good measure, and then like lean back in and uh, and take off. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the backseat writing notes like, ah, this is how the authentic Beijing is. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, like I remember when I was like uh, 18, I took a taxi and and I told the driver that he was actually on the other, the other like Huan Lu. And he just literally went in and drove um, reverse against all the traffic. And I was like, holy <laughs> fuck. I thought I was going to die. And he's just like, no, don't worry, man. I do this all the time. I'm like, fuck. Anyway, they're uh, like, they're really good drivers in Beijing because if you're not, you're, you're dead. <laughs> um, I noted that reaction times, not just in Beijing, but across the country, everybody drives so defensively that although you have a lot of uh, objectively speaking, bad behavior in driving, crossing the line back and forth, weaving, but everybody expects everybody else to be fucking around. And so everyone's on high alert all the time and reaction mm. time is amazing. And, uh, and yeah, you still get fender benders, but I, I have to feel like if they drove like that in a country where people are not used to driving like that, there would be incidents and accidents all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, There's a lot of road chaos and so everything happens and nobody you know you don't see nearly as many fender benders as you would expect i think yeah yeah definitely um i don't know i, I every time i'm in beijing it's just it, it's so funny just seeing this sort of all the subset groups of culture and taxi drivers in beijing are definitely one of the most colorful people um they beat the taxi drivers out of any other city i've ever been like shanghai taxi drivers they they suck they're just elitists, you know, but Beijing taxi drivers can usually talk to them and they'll talk, tell you about the entire life story about how their daughter, you know, failed in life because, you know, she went to like a Sunban university or some shit. And, you know, it, it's amazing. You don't get that in Shanghai. Also, I mean, from from my perspective as, you know, I'm, I'm a white guy, right? I look yeah. like a foreigner. Uh, and so it's obvious a Shanghai taxi driver will never try to talk to me. 
because he just assumes that I'm uh, a foreigner who doesn't speak English, uh, doesn't speak Chinese, and he won't. If I chat to him, yeah, they're they're friendly and happy to chat and happy enough anyway. But a Beijing taxi driver, because of the huge student population, foreign student population, assumes that a young white person. In Beijing, speaks Chinese, and they'll just start talking to you. They assume you must be a student studying Chinese, and they have thoughts and they want to share them. And oh so, yeah, they'll get they they talk politics. They have the craziest political thoughts sometimes. <laughs> no, they're happy, and it's funny though being other places where people will jump out of their seats like, oh, you know how to speak Chinese. Uh, yeah. Whereas Beijing taxi drivers are like, of course you speak Chinese. Right. Uh, you're- where are you from? You know, you know, yeah. Where are you from? <laughs> are you from Russia? You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> or I get American. You don't look American. Yeah, you look well, what's Romanian. American? <laughs> yeah, like, what's like, American look <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Recently, you've been to Yunnan a lot. So I guess you, you know, you probably, they probably just think you're like a backpacker or. Um, yeah. <laughs> I did not really much talking, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't know much Chinese. You know, it might actually be like a week ago from like, you know, near Hami or something, because you, you you don't shave. But they're probably happen. like, "What the fuck is this guy doing here?" Because <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. dude. Thanks for um, I don't know. I guess it's obviously a very interesting topic. Um, and it's interesting to see how sort of government inefficiencies at times can stuff things up. Um, I don't know. And, and not really the, um, the sinister international chess, international relations sort of thing that many on uh, the news sort of stations report that you know, China's a country undergoing proper industrialization, I guess, and maybe some hiccups. And that, well, it's certainly in Australian media, it feels like, um, you know, they wouldn't even notice what we do here, I think. <laughs> yeah, because no one cares here. The way the coal story, uh, the, the power shortages story was covered was so... Uh, the schadenfreude was, was so apparent and misplaced, of course. And, and anyone in the sector, in the Chinese power sector, knew that. Uh, we knew that whether or not shipments of coal circling off the coast, Australian coal circling off the coast, could make it inland and up the river to Hunan. Like, like let's just be logical. Hunan power was not going to be using Australian coal anyway. Mm. Uh, but also, more importantly than that, you, to believe that that was the case, you would have had to believe that there were power plants sitting abandoned in Hunan, you know, fully yeah. operational, begging for somebody to fill their coffers with coal so that they could crank up the boilers. Like how, <laughs> like that, that just made so little sense. And and so short of short of directly phrasing it as a causal relationship, which I think even the most hawkish media commentators knew better than to do they still couldn't help themselves and they would put it in juxtaposition 100 yeah next this comes as china refuses to accept the best coal in the world australian <laughs> coal. like we yes those things are both true at the same time oh and- wait we have the best coal okay. <laughs> 
you should you should know better than to like if people if you put them in two paragraphs in a news story yeah. side to side, even if it's not supposed to be causal, it looks like you're saying it's well, causal. It's also a exactly. sort of a type of pride in um, Australia. So there's a lot of coke because we're trying to look like we don't need China. So you don't, you don't know how much our prime minister loves coal. He brought a piece of coal into Parliament once, and uh, what did he do with it? Tracy kind of did he like kiss it or something? No, he just held it up. Yeah, he's a weirdo. Just, uh... So here's the thing about, yeah. about Australian coal, too. You guys are fine. Uh, Newcastle coal prices, if you take a look at what they've done, done over the last month, you found other buyers for them. Mm, it's, not yeah. like, it's not like the price plummeted because all of a sudden you had too much of the stuff and you couldn't find any buyers for it. Uh, Australia very quickly found other sources for coal. So also the, the, the glee on the pro-China side you know, was also misplaced. And mm. it's, it's all this – both sides showing a, a lot more interest in politics than in the reality of trade and, and commodities. <laughs> And international economics, like both sides are fine. China it was maybe a little bit uh, more important of a customer for Australia than Australia was as a supplier for China. But at the end of the day, both sides are going to be okay. They'll, the, the market will correct itself. There's a lot of countries that buy and sell coal, and there's a lot of space for the market to correct itself. Um, yeah, I, I'm just curious. Is, does this have to do of anything, because today uh, there's a huge story um, in ASX about um, lithium shares, which skyrocketed up 11, 20% in the last week uh, in Australia. Uh, this is coal demand, obviously, it's inter intersecting, it's all connected, right? Um, is this connected in any way or recently with China or? Uh, I, I gotta be honest, I don't know much about lithium. Oh, okay. I don't know much about lithium pricing or what, what, it's, what it's being used for, so sorry. Okay, yeah, it's just crazy because um, most shares in Australia have been going down apart from like the lending ones like Afterpay. And this suddenly this resource share just went skyrocketed up and um, a lot of millionaires have been made. Like it went up 6% today, which is um, massive. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm also just, as, as you, you know, you talked about like the fact that, you know, politics have made it look like it's now a sort of war, like everyone trying to get one over, get on the other side. It's kind of sad that, you know, this kind of the truth gets buried in between uh, no one's really owning anyone um i guess yeah there are there are so few people that are in the right position to have uh really strong and appropriately influenced takes and it will be week after week it will be different things that will come up and at least in the little microcosm of the world that we live in on twitter there might only be one or two qualified credible analysts who could even yeah. <laughs> have a commentary right like there's a couple people on there if you want you know there's there's the guy who does the commodities uh but a weak guy what's his name yeah uh, darren in in shanghai yeah. right and you've got the air the airplane consultant in shanghai like you've got these highly specialized experts and consultants and i mean i do my thing in nuclear and a little bit you know there, fortunately in renewable energy and in carbon world there are there are there's a stronger voice both online and in the general world because it's a it's a hot important topic and, yeah. and don't get it wrong I am by no means the most authoritative uh, or uh, experienced in this space not even on on China Twitter there are people that I would definitely defer to in this space that I think are, have very sharp very well informed uh, takes but when you look at something like if there was a suddenly 
an air airplane, China airplane something related story. And China's saying one thing and uh, the United States is saying another thing. And pro-China Twitter is is trying to form a consensus on what they think. And anti-China Twitter is trying to form a consensus on what they think. And none of them know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, that's the narrative in there. I mean, as I said, there's a lot of, I, I really despise lots of the, I mean, I, you all know my, my, my view on China Watchers. I talk about a lot about it, but lots, lots of the ultra-nationalists, they go way too far in trying to get it own. And it, 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 it just backfires so many times. Uh, and this is another example, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, and so there's, there's a few people in the space there that I, I want to hear from and I want to know, and I'll take the opinion of the one person whose whole career is doing this one <laughs> yeah. thing. In China, then uh, a thousand angry, retweeted, quote tweeted things from a well-meaning person who's in D.C. Even somebody who's pro-China, anti-imperialism, but they're in D.C. and so they only have a portion of the story and they don't actually speak Chinese. And you know, I'm, I'm talking about your gray zone type people, right? Sometimes yeah. they come up with takes that we agree with, but I don't think they had any of the important details to back it up. I don't think they had any of the uh, the in-country experience of the language. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I've talked to the gray zones in DM quite a few times and they're, they're actually very uh, well-meaning because um, when I give them a fact that refutes like one of the hypotheses, they just drop the hypothesis altogether. They're like, okay, this obviously not, doesn't work or it's fake. You know what I mean? And it, it, this is not the same as I've encountered with uh, mainstream journalists in the West. Yeah. I guess the point is, is that even, even um, I think I'm probably a prime example I'm constantly commenting on stuff that really I shouldn't, you know, like hopefully no one takes me too seriously. Yeah, but at but, least you, um, you, you always say you're not an expert. You're not like trying to pretend, oh, I'm, I'm the, you know, the, the king of yeah. this. Yeah, I guess it's, um, that's why, I guess from my perspective, pro-China Twitter should be as friendly as possible so we can attract those those people who do have those uh, very niche interests or qualifications to um, to give us some good information on stuff. That's why we love you, Dave. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that don't Twitter like you. <laughs> I always defend you, but I don't like you for some reason. <laughs> I guess no, that, I've, um, I've I've attracted some some detractors, and I'm not. I have my theories as to as to why I'm not. I mean, I'm not out there saying vile things about people, and I feel like people who are a lot more uh, assertive in their negative commentary than I uh, don't get don't get blocked by the people they're commentating on and don't get, and I, and I end up, um, I've had quite a few now high profile, uh, people in the China community. I'm not going to name anybody here, but you know, that blocked me quite unexpectedly. Uh, and I didn't even engage with them before. I never even messaged them with before. So I'm, I'm wondering, did they found my mere existence or anti-China or both sides, both sides, both sides, Hmm. uh, the, the, yeah. And so, um, you know, my mere existence to the anti-China side, sometimes I think, I guess maybe they find it, maybe they find me smug, right? I, 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 I can be smug sometime, I get it, like maybe they find me smug and annoying. Uh, <laughs> maybe they, I, I rag on U.S. institutions uh, quite a bit. And I mean, consider- everyone loves that. <laughs> it's part of democracy, Shelley, isn't it? Right? I'm born of a U.S. institution, the most institutionally inclined of them all, freaking Sice Hopkins, right? Half of my, yeah. half alumni are on here saying terrible things and uh oh yeah Hmm. right and 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 i bash on it a little bit i think i had a solid education and i 
I, I, that's, that I should be always clear. That's to say nothing of the quality of the education I received, but the quality of the education and then how your worldview uses it are two separate um, things. Sorry, sorry to pause you there. Uh, Rizzi, you don't remember that uh, guy who, uh, who apparently I called Ching Chong is always really mad, Andrew Philo, Philan? AJ uh, Philan. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a, uh, he's a, I think he's a uh, classmate of, uh, or what, well, not classmate, but a, uh, uh, like um, he went to Size Hopkins, right? Or... He did. He did the JHU Nanjing program, same as I did, many years before I did, and before we had a <laughs> there. Apparently, he's a swimming uh, champion, uh, and he gets called Ching Chong in China, which I really doubt. But yeah. <laughs> that was a particular. I that one. Yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and then yeah. there's that. Um, there was that. Was that UQ professor? that was teaching history about China or something that was listening to our podcast. He also went to, anyway, there's, there's a lot of, that, that school produces a lot of people for some reason that, uh, that's on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there are on, we've say the good guys, right. Who's on our side, right. Um, Andy Mock, if you aren't oh, following really? him, Andy Mock. Okay, he yeah, he's, um, he's Hopkins. I met him in, um, in Beijing actually, uh, a couple months ago when I was up there and we had a nice chat and he's, I, I wholeheartedly endorse, uh, Andy and definitely give him a follow if you aren't. I know this, this conversation is suddenly becoming an extremely online conversation as we are <laughs> on a podcast talking about who we should follow on Twitter. I mean, that's uh, what most podcasts are these days. Like trust, even the ones on YouTube, they, you know, they, they do that. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. No. Nah. That's what, right. That's there's a, there's a few other DC think tanky types that, you know, they they're on a different side of the political spectrum than I am, especially the the more liberal ones. But I don't find them intolerable. I still I'll follow them and I'll still like pay attention to what they say, because I know what they went through. I know their Chinese chops are at least at a certain level mm. uh, through the program. And so they've come to a different interpretation of things than I have. But I can respect it because I know that they know some stuff. Uh, what about uh, there's one certain person who I have, I'm very curious about, if not you, you've observed him, called uh, David McGregor. <laughs> he's uh, he's definitely the most peculiar of the pro-China side, um, since he's a QAnon Trump supporter that works with CCTV. Uh, have you noticed that guy? Oh yeah, we saw that guy this week. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, is it it's, is it Tom McGregor? Tom McGregor, sorry. Yeah. Tom McGregor. Um, Tom yeah, Falcon II. Apparently, he's the son of a U.S. congressman or something like that. I've I've I followed him in the past, and I found it quite interesting that anytime there was information about specific things on the ground in China, uh, he was very you know uh, well spoken and accurate in his kind of refutation of it. I wonder how he reconciles exactly uh, that position with his what is a very uh, conservative uh, MAGA QAnon type uh, political platform, and it's it's very interesting to me. I mean, that, I also, that kind of uh, shows that China's you know media landscape, even its sort of localized state media, is not as you know one-sided as it seems. Uh, I mean, this guy's the son of a former text Republican. Te Chairman of the Republican Texans, so Texas Republicans. That's pretty conservative if you think about it. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, undoubtedly. And uh, there's also um, Six Note, which is you know they they always go against uh, the grain of the state media. 
Yeah, Six Nights is great. Uh, pretty cool, actually. I I enjoy some of their cultural stuff as well. Got interest in it's, uh, it's, writing it's, them. Yeah, they've definitely they're they're and I don't know how I know they're tagged as state affiliated media, and I think that's because they're a side project or a pet project of one of the one of the. Uh, provincial broadcasters, something yeah, like that. Yeah, they're directly funded by the Shanghai government, actually, municipal yeah, government. Yeah. So they're, along with Caixin, they're definitely pushing the line of of how far they can go in their uh, in in their reporting of China. And I think it's an interesting case to to see because you know, and again, without naming names, but some of the people in the editorial staff, you can imagine how they would write and what they would write if they were working for BBC or for Oh, no, there's a lot of very much Reuters um, undertones in a lot of their articles. Like the, the main, um, who's the main editor? They have that, I uh, can't remember his name. Was, they, they have a head of news who has yeah. pointed out multiple times that he is not the main editor. Uh, not him, not him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, he, he's very much the standard DC lib. Yeah, that guy. Um, can't remember his name. There's too many people and. Are you talking about Polk, David Polk? Uh, yeah, he, he's a no, he's a super lib. There's another one. It's a Chinese guy. Okay. Um, he's also like basically a boba lib. If you uh, ever talk to him. Right, and so I find it interesting though that they are in the position of they would probably write about these things totally differently if they were working for a different outlet, but they are working for an outlet in China and they have a career here and they are. Uh, writing for state-affiliated media, and so they have to balance it, and somehow I feel like in the end that means like you miraculously end up with a very balanced take <laughs> on on what it, yeah, like they have sure. they have to even out what they would want to say if they worked for Reuters versus what they're allowed to say because they're here, and you get something quite nuanced. Uh, I I don't know. I think Six Note because I I know some of the people that worked in it um, in Australia. <laughs> And I don't know, there's, there's very dodgy stuff going on sometimes. And I, I, I do question, I, I don't know. It, I, I like some of this stuff. It's very good. I think cultural stuff is amazing. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like Vox for me. Like Vox is really good cultural stuff sometimes. Cause it's very I do get that sort of vibe. It's very, but then um, they get, yeah. Like older millennial, very, um, uh, like it's almost like a Silicon Valley sort of vibe to it. Um, yes. young hip professional, you know, like yeah, like the people <laughs> I I know that work there are basically you know late twenties, early thirties, people that ride bikes and uh, drink expensive lattes, you know, that type of people. <laughs> um, but and that's the vibe, and Rizzy got it, yeah. Uh, but I, I know what you mean. It's very it's a very interesting project. Um, I I, I like some of that material, but. Every time I see the foreign policy stuff, or like it, 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 it's either too pro-China or too pro the West for me. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just I'm a very skewed view of everything. It's that their 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 existence is an interesting experiment, and I feel that uh, I don't know. I I sometimes when people talk about uh, the limits or the guardrails of what you're allowed to talk about in China and how you're allowed to talk about it. I want to point at them to say, well, look at what Six Tone state affiliated media is doing. But then in the next thought, I go, well, if we draw too much attention to it, maybe we'll lose it. Maybe they won't be able to, you know, do what they're doing anymore. And then I don't know, maybe that's 
maybe that's not a good position to put them in or to be in in general. So it's it's a strange situation. Yeah, it is. Um, and it, they wouldn't pay well as well. Like, I mean, you probably get paid more as an English teacher than working for six tone. So the people that work there, they they probably have a tiny bit more integrity, I guess. <laughs> if you if you get what I mean. These days in China, you can get paid more as an English teacher than a whole lot of things. You know, we can't get any new people in here. So it's just all the agencies trying to steal English teachers from the other schools with increasingly uh, lucrative packages because there's no new blood in town. That always annoyed me, actually. You have people with like a master's and like, you know, engineering, like, and they get paid less than some random English teacher. But I guess it's supply and demand. Because there's a lot of engineers in China. <laughs> the supply is frozen right now, and even shrinking as people may, you know, occasionally leave China. Certainly not growing because nobody can come here, and demand is 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 booming. So I've seen some incredibly inflated uh, packages of benefits pay? packages. Uh, yeah, yeah, pay plus uh, a laptop cover your housing allowance all your meals are paid for in the cat i mean it's the cafeteria but like i think they can't even they have nothing to spend money on they make it's these a bubble it's a bubble you know? <laughs> yeah, of course of course i mean once 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 china's you know if they ever do that once they erase the need for chinese in universities or even at the gold Coast level which will actually really hamstring china in my opinion but so they haven't removed that that all that industry is dead but yeah um because I, yeah. I I don't know why, but I think Gold Coast Chinese is, is really sh- bad. They only really teach you how to basically. It seems to be really poor at teaching oral Chinese, um, from what I've experienced. All you have to do is is look at a Chinese college graduate who's at CET level four or Siji, right? Level four can barely communicate. They can read and write much better than speaking, of course. Uh, but level four, you're, you're going to have some pretty shaky uh, communication skills, and that's higher than the Gaokao level. For oh, really? College. Yeah, I, I just don't know what the hell they're learning in, in all those years of Gaokao English. It seems like I, I've yet to meet a fluent Gaokao English speaker, uh, unless they watched a lot of Big Bang Theory, which is, just makes them a worse person in general. Oh, so. God. <laughs> of, um, so while I was doing my degree in Nanjing uh, a long time ago, uh, I, I I taught AP English classes because I wanted to make money, right? And, uh, and I had I was a student, so I taught AP English. And these were all kids who were going to the international school, or not the international school. They had a, a IB International Baccalaureate. It was in Chinese, but it was IB school, and they were all getting ready to apply for school in uh, in the UK or the US or Australia. And they were taking. English AP, that's Advanced Placement English, a U.S. and Canadian mm-hmm. program for high achievers of native language English speakers uh, in, in English writing. And I taught them how to pass the test uh, at the same level as, a, uh, as an American high school student could. And some of them did pass the test and they got college credit for their English credit before they oh, went wow. to the U.S. And um, they spoke very strong English. And these are, of course, wealthy families, wealthy children who had had good education their whole lives. But this was in Nanjing. This is a second tier city. Yeah, uh, so, Nanjing. I, I put it first tier nowadays. I mean, it is still second tier, but I, I think it is. Right. But yeah, uh, and this was um, this was eight years ago. Six, sorry, seven years ago. But uh, the point being that if there's enough of those existing in Nanjing, there's certainly a lot more in Shanghai and Beijing. And, and I mean, uh, my sister did um, IB uh, in Beijing, actually, from year 9 to 12. 
but it's kind of unfair. I mean, she she, she grew up in Australia for the first 100% of her life. So it was very, she passed that very easily. Um, so that, that could be one of the reasons they could be, you know, people like my sister, but I'm not sure. Um, but otherwise, uh, she, she she did really poorly in Chinese. So that's the trade-off, trade-off, yeah. Right, and, and so these these are, this is the market, right? There's still, there's still gonna be a market for these. Uh, at some point, I guess maybe uh, Chinese, the wealthy class of China will lose their fascination or reduce their fascination with sending their children away for elite uh, universities, brand name universities around the world. But that's gonna also take a significant uh, kind of socio-cultural realignment of how employers in China see Chinese universities versus international universities. When when you can finally go to a school in in China, aside from Beida or Tsinghua, and get the same cred that you got for sending your kid away to, to Harvard, then you can say, like, China's arrived, at least in the educational yeah. Uh, perspective. Yeah, but I, 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 I think... Um... As someone that's, you know, been in Chinese universities, I say Chinese universities, those students, they work way harder than anything I've seen in, in Australia anyway, but yeah. Yeah, but it's reputation, isn't it? It's, it's, it's all, it's all that, thing. yeah. It's, it's manufactured. And, and I will say that if you went to Tsinghua in China, just as many doors open for you as if you went to Harvard in the United States. And, and you know, maybe even as if you went to Harvard in the United States and you came back to China. Like Tsinghua and Beida, you get doors open for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did, I did a semester at Beida, and even that just gives me a lot of credit for no reason. But anyway, <laughs> I, well, I yeah, didn't do anything. Yeah, me too. My, stu my study abroad was at Beida, and I still get the, the googly eyes. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh my god, you must be a genius. I'm like, no, I was like the dumbest guy, because everyone else worked hard. I just paid for the program. It was hosted at Beida. Yeah, but still, you yeah. went to Beida. I was like, I don't think, okay, yes, yes, you're right. I went to Beida. <laughs> I mean, in China, the, the standards are so hard to get into the top two. It's it's, it's insane. You literally have to be a robot, um, like in terms of study. So, um, and even being a robot is sometimes not enough. If you're from another province, the quota for mm. Hubei, like my, my my girlfriend's hometown in Hubei, the quota for her 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 whole city for students to go study in Beijing was like 15 or something. It's yeah. it's insanely difficult uh, for you to be able to go to Beijing for school if you're not from, uh, you know, the chosen chosen uh, cities. That's why you get this Beijing privilege, you know, because Beijing has oh, all the best what? unis and they have all the most most, most spots. And uh, that's, there's like a lot of lament from uh, Jiangsu province because they're one of the wealthiest provinces, but they have one of the least quotas, like smallest quotas, and yet they get no extra marks for whatever because they're too wealthy. So cities like um, Suzhou or the northern Bay cities, they, they basically get left behind because they're not as wealthy as the south, but they get grouped together. So anyway, that's that's another story about inequality in Jiangsu, Subay and Jiangnan clash. But yeah. <laughs> well, yeah on that note, culture uh... clash between southern and northern Jiangsu to the extent where people in central Jiangsu have invented the word Suzhou because they don't want to be associated with northern Jiangsu. Hey, they so, still they still find ways to discriminate no matter what. Like yeah. you can look at Nanjing, they call it um, Huijing, which is like capital Anhui, which is not true. But anyway. Mm. Sorry. What was uh, what was that, Regan? Have you to call it? <laughs> yeah, let's wrap it up. We've done for an hour and a half here, so. Uh, <laughs> thanks yeah, for coming to the show, dude. And um, 